0: Sing to me of heaven, what a lovely song. That one and the others we have voiced together this morning have certainly had sentiments within it that not only are beautiful, but also in some ways very encouraging, very challenging. It's so good to be able to come together on the first day of the week as we are this morning to offer our heartfelt praise and worship unto God, and we're thankful for the presence of each and everybody. We hope that each continues to be well with you and me, that we can continue in healthfulness to serve the Lord. But we do want to certainly think about those who have been named today and hope that for them things will soon be far better. You may have noticed that the lesson today is one that will involve who did no sin. And as we make ready to give some thought to that, let me say that next Sunday, uh, my family and I will not be with you in that I'll be holding a gospel meeting uh, beginning at the Union Hill Church of Christ there in Jackson County. So I certainly will invite your prayers on behalf of that effort by that congregation. And I know that things here will go as always as smoothly and as directly as, as certainly ever. Who did no sin? You've already appreciated for the lesson text that we'll be looking very carefully at that passage in a number of ways. But to lead into it, could I at least invite your thoughts to matters that I have listed like this? I know that each of us would quickly appreciate many things about Jesus that are remarkable, things that are incredible, things that in fact are matters you and I would wish to imitate. For example, aren't you impressed with His meekness? Although the Creator of this universe, nonetheless, He could in fact involve Himself and interact with others in such a meek and remarkable way. One could mention his remarkable judgment. He could look at a situation and know exactly how to deal with it. I know I struggle at that. Perhaps you do as well. He was a master of discernment. He could make the right decision at exactly the right time to benefit those with whom he was interacting. You could list a number of other things, such as his ability to teach to those of us Isn't that remarkable to think of his outstanding capacity to teach others? We could go on and on with this list. The fact is, no doubt, we've each tried to emulate him in many ways, and we look at him and see a pattern that we would wish we could follow. But yet, perhaps among all the things that might be listed, I suspect that maybe the greatest one, the most incredible one, is the fact he never sinned, who did no sin. And so for the context of our lesson, the fullness of it today, why don't we reflect upon that, thinking about exactly what that signifies and some great lessons you and I might extract from it too, his sinlessness. On this next slide, as you begin to consider those things with me, we're first of all going to remind ourselves what sin is. 1 John 3, 4 is the clearest biblical definition of sin. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And therefore sin is not merely some emotional response to something. It is an actual violation, an actual transgression, if you please, of the Word of God. That which is the will of God has been violated. Now the next thing that you and I might keep in mind, connected to that. So in what ways might one sin? Could I offer the first one? It is entirely possible, as we shall shortly discover, it's possible to sin by what we say. I've entitled it, What is Spoken. If we revisit passages such as Psalm 39, 1, and James 3, verse 6, perhaps that James passage is the most easily remembered one, Did James not say the tongue is a world of iniquity? (laughs) Now, iniquity, of course, means sinfulness. And so when used improperly, when used carelessly, the tongue can be a world of iniquity. It can present what, in fact, can do such great damage and harm. It can tear down that which was otherwise be good. But so you see, it's entirely possible that one could sin by virtue of what one says. The next matter on that slide then is this. The Bible is filled with examples of those who did this. Isn't it true Moses on one occasion did so? I say at least one occasion. It would seem there were others, but this one is noted so highly in the Word of God. You remember the scene well. The people of Israel, as it seems, was rather common to them. They were given to a bit of complaining. They were given to, in fact, a bit of ingratitude. God wanted water brought out of a rock for them. And the information was relayed to Moses that he was to, before the congregation, to speak in a particular way, always directing, of course, the glory and credit unto God. And you and I recall that Moses not only struck the rock twice but he in fact took the credit and the glory to himself. And therein was such that he later would say that I spoke inadvisedly. That's the Bible's way of saying he sinned in the way that he spoke it, in what that he had said. I know that you and I can often find ourselves in circumstances where our language, we make choices and speak in such a way that it's not consistent with the Word of God. It's not consistent with what the Bible would encourage and demand of us. And because of that, we thus find ourselves having spoken inadvisedly. You'll notice on this slide that we could proceed even further and notice in Revelation 21.8, if we look at a particular attribute of this spoken possibility, lying, we know, for example, that no liar is going to enter heaven. Revelation 21, eight reminds us of that. And it's echoed again in Revelation 22, verses 13 and 15. At the very least, we can say words mean a great deal. And it's possible to sin by virtue of them. Couldn't you and I recall one of the famous statements of the Master? In Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, "...by thy words thou shalt be justified." And by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Doesn't that impress upon us the seriousness of the words we choose to use and how that we can sin by virtue of them? We're going to be judged by them. No wonder in that connection. Let's return to our passage. Could I now invite you to hear again the words of 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 21. You and I have perhaps, over the last few moments, thought of multitudes of times in our life when we sinned by way of words. Listen to this description of Jesus For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow His steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth, who, when He was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Among the descriptions descriptives of Jesus is he did no sin. That means he never ever sinned by what he spoke. He never, ever said the wrong thing. He never, ever said it in the wrong way. He never, ever sinned by way of words. You know, depending on the kind of occupation that you have or the kind of other attributes of life, think about how many words you may well speak over the course of your life. (laughs) Literally millions of words. Jesus spoke that many. He was a teacher. From the time we encounter his teaching public ministry that began in the year twenty six AD. He thus preached for approximately three and a third years. Out of all the words that he spoke, and John would tell us in John twenty one twenty five that a lot of the things that he spoke were not even recorded, and never did he sin in any of those ways. That's absolutely astounding to think of never, ever sinning in the, in the things you say. Doesn't that give us a heightened respect to what Jesus accomplished and His commitment to the Word of God? You and I should well remember that one of the things that's so true about sin is that it's a choice. You and I can never bl- claim, well, someone or something made me do it. That just isn't biblically accurate. Any time we ever say what we should not, we chose to say it. Every time that we fail to say what we should, we made that choice. Doesn't that imply Jesus never made the wrong choice in this? When it was the right time to speak, He spoke. When it was the right time to be silent, He was silent. When it was the right time to use certain attributes and choices of words to make a point in the right way, He did it. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, in many ways, that impressiveness is even heightened this way. Did you notice? No guile was in his mouth. You may take note of what the definition of that word guile is. It literally means fraud. It means deceit. He never tried in some way to gain advantage by deceiving someone else. You and I know well that sometimes the world today thrives on that behavior. Many will claim, well, I didn't actually lie. Well, did you lead the person to appreciate what really was the case? Well, no, but I didn't lie. I let him or her make their own decision, you see. Well, Jesus never engaged in any fraud. He never engaged in any trickery like that. Maybe one more thing. Did you note the next verse? It says, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. He didn't dish it back to them just because they had dished it to him. That word reviled is a very strong statement about the character of battling against one's pride of life. You and I know very well that that's one of the hardest times to hold one's tongue. When someone has said something directly to your face or they've said something directly to you, that has in fact reflected a bit poorly upon you. None of us like to think we've done a bad job. None of us like to think that we aren't measuring up. And when someone calls us on the carpet because of that, it's easy to react and respond very quickly in defense of oneself that may well damage the reputation of them. The Lord never did that. Not even once. That is amazing, isn't it? what dedication to the Word of God and to living right by Him to even be willing to have one's own reputation damaged and not speak out inappropriately in defense of one's position or person Jesus never sinned by what He spoke at this point what else could be said about the decisions the Lord made we all know that you can also sin not only by virtue of what you say but by what you do (laughs) Well, let's give some thought to that aspect of it, too. By the fact the text says he did no sin, that also would include his actions. As you begin the top of that slide, isn't it true that the Bible also is quick to remind us you can sin by your actions? In Acts chapter 7, verse number 60, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, we have a, a a couple of passages, among many others, that might have been mentioned where it brings to our thought the fact that we can, by our actions, do that which is not pleasing to God. In the Word of God, filled with those who made those decisions, the ancient children of Israel would choose to be idolatrous, and they would act in a way that would bring God's wrath upon them. Or they would choose to, in fact, ignore the poor and the blind. They made those choices. And God frequently would make mention that He not only was unhappy with that choice, but that they would face judgment because of it. Other examples of the New Testament might also be listed. But maybe the thought goes without any further elaboration. One can sin by one's actions. But let's develop it this way. In Genesis 4 verse 7, what did God say to Cain in that early episode, in the matters of time. We recall that sacrifices by Cain and Abel had been brought, the offerings if he please unto God, and God was pleased with Abel's, but He was not pleased with Cain's. And God told Cain that he would sin if he did not do that which he should. Well, there it is. The word do implies actions, and we notice Cain had become guilty. In fact, he was about to do something wherein he took the life of his brother. May I say, in light of those things, let's return to Jesus just a minute. Think how many actions are done in the course of a day. How many things in which you and I involve ourselves? Well, Jesus, He lived upon this earth as well, and There were those choices and those actions of his day. And the fact is, he did never sin. He had no sin. He never, in fact, did that which would have been a sinful action. He never did that which would have been displeasing to God. That, again, I would suspect is a fascinating conception. Can you and I even make it a day without displeasing God? Can we make it two days? Could we even imagine making it a week? And the Lord lived an entire life and never once engaged in an action that was sinful. Never once. I would submit to you that is a high plateau of living and a high plateau worthy of our imitation as nearly as we can try to do it. Could I remind all of us about a verse that describes every one of us? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, may we never look into that and say, well, thus I have a license. I know I can never live perfectly. That doesn't excuse us. That verse is just a reminder of the choice that every one of us have made and that we will continue to make. That's just the way it is. We are going to make those choices. The Lord never did. He never sinned in the actions in which he was engaged. You'll notice on that slide, there are a number of verses that continues this description, Hebrews 4.15, to be one of them. We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now that adds another consideration to this, doesn't it? Some may claim, well, the Lord just doesn't know what I go through that's not so. Every temptation you and I face, there was one like it in his life. There was something parallel to it. There was a situation that was remarkably similar, and he chose not to sin, whereas you and I often choose to sin. And there ends the great difference, isn't it? He did no sin. Doesn't that remind us of his dedication, his commitment, his devotion to wanting to be right with God? That devotion in you and me isn't as strong as it was in him. He had a keener understanding of what sin would mean, didn't it? To be separated from God, to have hell in your future. The Lord knew that that was the lot of those who were not right with God. Is it any wonder then the Lord... As you and I reflect upon the fact he never sinned by speaking, he never sinned in action. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, you and I notice a few other things about that which is descriptive of the Lord. In Matthew 12, verse 20, it says, He never damaged the reed. Now that's stated in a rather poetic way. He did not by his actions intentionally harm or hurt or damage or injure others. He came as a messenger of that which was the will of God for them. He would often heal the sick, but that wasn't his primary mission to come to earth. He wanted to share forth to them the unsearchable riches of truth and what it was like to be at peace with God. The Lord never sinned in what He did. What's next? Now this one I suspect may be another level above. Would you consider with me for a moment what one thinks? So keep in mind, it may never be that you say anything about it. It may never be that it emanates in action, but the thought has crossed your mind. Question, is it possible to sin by virtue of what you think? The Bible says yes. I've asked you to notice at the top of that slide. In Isaiah 59, verse 7, even in the heart of the Old Testament, it was pointed out in strength that Israel was sinning by virtue of what they thought. Now, if that was true in the Old Testament, are we surprised as we come to the New Testament that similar sentiments are expressed? Ezekiel would say it in Ezekiel 38 that one more time, even while they were in Babylonian captivity, the people were guilty of sin, among other ways, by what they thought. As far as the New Testament, Jesus explicitly said it. In Mark 9 verse 4, as well as Mark 7 21, we have these two expressions in which Jesus made reference to people who had evil thoughts. Thoughts that are evil. Thoughts that thus are not right by way of the consideration of God. if Jesus said that those things are a part of this New Testament era, we understand that they are certainly possible for us. How important is it we guard our thinking to make sure that our thoughts are in connection to the Word of God so that they are not moving in a direction and inclusive of that which is not right. In Psalm 64, reference is particularly given to those who were dwelling on things that were sinful. That is to say, filled with iniquity. You and I know that the Bible mentions on a number of occasions that that, in fact, led to many problems. Because if your actions are wrong, they likely will lead to words that are wrong and to actions likely that will soon follow. At least for now. Could we not remind ourselves, and isn't it true that sometimes, I suppose, we can become guilty of thinking along this line, look, nobody knows this. I haven't said anything about it. I surely haven't done anything about it. I've never gone to the place. But may we never forget, though nobody else on earth may know it, God does. Proverbs 15, 3 continues to remind us, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Psalm 39, beginning in verse 1, describes the fact there is no place one can go to hide even one's thoughts from, from the God of heaven. So isn't it thus a quick truth we can sin by what we think? On that slide, thus you'll notice, this, it seems to me, only heightens our respect for Jesus. Not only did He never sin in what He said, not only did He never sin in what He did, He never sinned in what He thought. If the Bible points out to us, and it does, that he did no sin, that would have included what he thought. How well are you and I doing at this? Are we filling our mind and our life and our heart with things that are wholesome and good? Or are we allowing, at least on occasion, things to cross our mind and maybe even making the choice to allow those things to cross our mind, which are unwholesome, ugly and in fact sinful. That is a very strong statement, isn't it? And the Bible reminds us that we should think on things, and maybe your recollection of the verse is already before you, but think, Philippians 4.8, on things that are true, things that are honest, things that are lovely, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are of good report. There's what you and I are encouraged to think about. Are we doing a good job at that? Each of us will have to make our determination of that. But it is a high standard, isn't it? As you and I close that slide, isn't it thus a challenge to bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ? To borrow the wording of 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 and 4. Every thought. That doesn't leave any one of them out. So far as we have thus discussed these three ways in which one can sin, one more in the lesson is yours. The Bible identifies there is another way we can sin, in addition to what we say, and in addition to what we do, and in addition to what we think. We can also be guilty of sin by virtue of violating our conscience on things that are indifferent. We know that's so because of what Paul says in Romans fourteen twenty three. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And in that context, he's identifying matters which are otherwise indifferent, but which one violates his conscience. You may recall how that worked. There was meat being offered to idols, and Paul said if it violates your conscience to partake of it, it's a sin if you do. Well, today, you and I need to ponder in our convictions, and in our dedication to the Lord, when we thus act in some way that violates that conscience, we've become guilty of sin. One more time, Jesus never did. He lived under the law of Moses, may we never forget that. That law that was so strict and particular in many ways, I confess... And there would certainly be ample opportunity to engage in an activity or to refrain from such when it would have been, perhaps not in the explicit letter of the law. I would mention Daniel as an example. Do you recall the days of Daniel? He prayed three times every day. Now the Old Testament hadn't commanded he do that, but he did it. And yet when the king challenged and said, you're not to do this... Daniel didn't stop he didn't stop that's found in Daniel chapter 6 and so here was a scene when it was in the conscience of Daniel he needed to pray and he was not going to quit doing it it may well be you and I today have particular matters in our service to God may we never violate our conscience in light of those matters the Lord never did you see But how easy sometimes it is for us to rationalize, to justify, to make some kind of a statement that we think excuses ourselves. On that slide, again, Hebrews 4.15, we learn of Jesus. Although He was tempted and always like we are, yet He never sinned. At this point, the last two statements on that slide are simply these. Because He never sinned. He thus could serve as a sacrifice for my sins and for yours. Because he had none, he could thus be the perfect Lamb of God that could bear my sins on Calvary's cross and yours too. Oh, how much is the debt of thanks we owe him! Every moment of his life, he made those individual choices, and he never said what was inappropriate. He never did what was inappropriate. He never thought what was inappropriate. And he never violated his conscience either. Talk about living a pure conscience and the life that went with it. That allows us to conclude this lesson then like this. The Bible is very clear in asserting Jesus never sinned. Since sin involves a choice. A choice to say what I shouldn't or to fail to say what I should, or a choice to do what I should not do, or to fail to do what I should, or the choice to think what I should not think, or perhaps to fail to think what I should think. And sin is again that particular issue involved in violating the conscience. Jesus never failed in any of these avenues. You and I have, and you and I will. We need the Lord. We need His sacrifice, for His blood can wash over those sins and forgive them and cleanse them. Because you and I, unlike Him, make poor choices. We choose in these ways to involve ourselves in what's sinful. May we have an even greater respect and regard for the daily choices that Jesus made. And may that serve as a motivation for us to strive ourselves to make better choices in what we say, what we think, and what we do. This very day, if there's anyone in this assembly who maybe has, upon reflection, recognized that you would wish to come forward and acknowledge that you are a wayward child of God, that though once you were living in purity and living in proper association to the God of heaven, that's not true this morning because you have acted and behaved in ways that have brought shame and reproach and disgrace upon you and upon the church. We today would be honored to pray upon your behalf. And as you make note of those sins and your repentance of them and confession of them, Jesus would with delight forgive them. It could be, though, that there's someone who has never become a Christian. You have never known the sweetness of connecting your life to the one who never sinned. What a God he can be. Many years ago, of course, it was often said, to be like Mike, referring to Michael Jordan. May I say there's one a lot better than Michael Jordan tried to be like. It's Jesus the Christ, because He never sinned. He never failed in any way. May we all strive to be like Him. If today we could assist you in your initial response to the gospel's call of invitation, won't you believe in the Lord? Won't you repent of your sins? Won't you confess His great name as the Son of God and won't you be baptized? The baptismal waters behind me are warm and ready. In a matter of moments, you could leave this edifice today bound for heaven. If we could help you in that regard today, don't delay. Don't wait another moment. Why don't you come while we stand and sing?